And so let's begin with prayer. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Teach us your word, O Lord. Show us your word. Guide us. Prepare us to obey so that we will obey you and we will show your mercy to those around us. We'll declare to the world, a dying world, a hurting world, how much they need you. And we will show them your love and your grace. Oh, if only this world and those caught in the darkness of this world would know you, would know your love and how much you truly do love them. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a researcher asked 100 American and Japanese college students to take a piece of paper. On one side, they wrote down the decisions in life they would like to make for themselves, and on the other, they wrote the decisions they would like to pass on to others. The Americans filled up the, side, the one side for decisions they want to decide for themselves, where to live, what job to take. The other side was almost blank. The only decision they commonly wanted to hand off to others was, when I die. The Japanese filled up the backside of the sheet with things that they wanted others to decide, where, what they wore, what time they woke up, what they did at their job. The Americans desired choice in, in four times more domains than the Japanese. Based on this experience, New York Times columnist David Brooks claims America is experiencing a choice explosion. And according to his quote, he writes this, Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, lifestyles, and sadly, identities. In some ways, this is a, uh, you know, it's an interesting trend, but Brooks also cautions that it's becoming incredibly important to learn to decide well. The topic of choice and making decisions for ourselves really falls in the realm of what we may call freedom. Okay? We think, and I think wrongly, that freedom, well, I know wrongly, not think, but we th uh, we, that freedom is being able to do whatever my selfish heart wants to do. And if I were to do whatever my selfish heart wants to do, then it would, I'd be hurting other people, and they would not be doing what they wanted to. That is not freedom. That's really a doorway to addiction. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I am free in Christ in a way, he's saying, I can do whatever I want in Christ. But he says, you know what? There's a danger in that. He realized that even though he's free, not every craving and desire that he wants to be fulfilled is good. And in fact, he gave, if he gave in to those desires, he would, not, he would be mastered by those choices and he'd no longer be able to say no to them. Freedom to Paul, as it is defined by Scripture... What is freedom? It is to love, to love as God loves. In, Col in Galatians, Paul wrote this, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see how we misunderstand freedom? I'm free. It's an opportunity to do what I want in the flesh. And Paul says, no, it's not. It's to love. Freedom is understood as not an opportunity for the flesh, but is to love and uplift and to care for one another. 
In Judges, we read this sad statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. We call this anarchy. Anarchy is not freedom. It is an opportunity for tyranny. And as you read Judges, it just gets darker and darker and darker. Why? Because they're doing whatever they want, and it ends in tyranny and war. So we know that doing whatever we want does not lead to more freedom, but actually less freedom. Just because we have a myriad of choices doesn't mean we have the wisdom to make good choices. The problem, again, is our heart. We have a sinful heart to begin with. The choices we make typically uh, will typically be driven by our sin nature. We talk about a free will. Our will is not as free as you think it is. It is driven by sin. We are sinners. We have a sinful heart. We will not choose righteousness. We will not seek righteousness. We will not seek God on our own. We will continue to pursue the sin nature within us until Christ invades us. It may be that our life is made up of choices. And we may be here today in the capacity that we are because of the choices we have made. However, there may be choices that were forced upon you. There may be things that happened to you that you had no control over. We cannot see the future, so we cannot see how our choices ultimately will play out. As we see it, we need wisdom more than we need choices. We need God more than we think we can live our own lives apart from Him. We are neither intelligent enough nor powerful enough to lead ourselves. We need God. When we think of freedom to live, we have to begin with the fundamental truth, and that is this, God is the Creator. You have to know that. You have to know that in your heart. And since God is the creator, you are not and I am not. And God is the creator. This is his world, his universe, his everything. He owns it. We in reality own nothing. We are visitors, guests on this planet. Our life exists because of him. We do not have life within ourselves. Only God has life within him, himself. In Acts we read this, For in him we live and move and exist or have our being. I remember it. It's all because of him. In Job, Elihu said this, if he should determine to do so, if he should gather himself, his spirit, and his breath, all flesh would perish together, man would return to the dust. In Psalms we read, you hide your face, they're dismayed, you take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. It's all his. Even the breath you breathe is his. The body you, you walk around, that's his. Some of you say, oh, I'll give it back. Give me another one, would you? <laughs> it all belongs to him, our breath, our mind, everything belongs to him. We should say thank you, Lord, for that air I'm breathing today. Thank you for all you do. It belongs to you. It is, I say this because if we do not truly understand that God is our creator, the one who created me, you and me, the verses that I'm about to read to you will offend you. And it shouldn't. Because God is the creator. So I want to you to declare today, God is the creator. God, you are the creator. You must know that in the depths of your mind. Because God is the creator and he is sovereign, he is in control. He is Lord. He governs the universe. In Psalm 115, it says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And what does he do? He loves. That's what God does. He loves. He is the creator of this world who loves. He created humanity for one purpose, so that you can know him. He wants you to know him. 
We are geared and created to know him, but our sin keeps us away from him, angry at him, and thinking we're owners, not stewards. In Romans, Paul described the details of the gospel. He describes the love of God, the sin of humanity, faith in Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection, the life of Christ, the hope of living out the life of Christ in us as Christ lives his life in us. The height of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel is Romans 8, 38, 39. For what can separate us from the love of God? For I am convinced, says Paul, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. That is the height of the gospel. His love is for you. And he loves you with an eternal love. If you are in, a, in, in despair, in the darkness of your mind, as you feel the demons coming in, no, his love is greater than that. And you can cry out to him. And his love will surround you. You know, as he said that verse, nothing can separate us from the love of God, then he began to think, well, what about the Jewish people? Did God's love stop with them? Did he stop loving them? Did somehow they get left out? But Paul wants to know that the gospel includes the Jewish people. After all, that God created a people for himself. They're his people for the express purpose. He revealed himself to the Jewish people to reveal his name so that the world can know him. From the Jewish people came the Messiah, Christ. Paul wants to show that not all Israel, though, is, not, is Israel. However, God has also reserved for himself a remnant of those, uh, of his people who will follow him. In this world, there will always be a people who will follow, serve, and worship the creator of heaven and earth. God will get his way. He is the creator. The gospel is for the whole world. As we are a missionary church, we don't focus solely on Evanston. We want to be aware that there are lost people all over the world. There's people in despair all over the world. There's broken people all over the world because Christ is for the whole world. And Christ is for every person. Number one, God is just. Let's look at Romans 9, start with verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. There's a comic strip called Baby Blues. It's about a family with three small children. And as you know, children can have a penchant for identifying fairness in parents. And the parents want to mitigate this uh, as much as possible. And so in this one particular comic strip, the father made two identical peanut butter sandwiches. He's careful to tell his older, two older kids that he made these sandwiches, each with the crust removed, and placed them on identical plates. Then he says, thanks to my careful preparation, there's nothing in this snack that you can fight about. Then the kids look at the sandwiches, and then they look at each other, and then the older sister pipes up and says, he made mine first. And the little boy says, no fair. Fairness. What is fairness? How do we define fair? How do we determine what is fair? Same opportunities, same results, same this, same that, same, same, same. 
we know that not everyone is born into the same situation. There is not a lot of fairness, we would say, in the world. How about we change the question? We maybe could ask the question differently. What if we say fairness is getting what we deserve? In Proverbs, we read this. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? In Matthew, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. I don't know that I would want to go to God with all my deeds and say, am I in? God is the creator. Would it be fair to say that fairness is what we deserve? But what is it we deserve from God? He is the creator. What does he owe us? Does he owe us an explanation? Does he owe us what we call a good life? Does he owe us a life without problems and struggles? Does he owe us good health, a long life, our loved ones never to die? If you look at the Bible, what we deserve is not what we get from God. Instead, we deserve eternal separation from God in hell. In Ephesians 2, we're told by nature we're children of wrath. If we get what we deserve, that's called judgment. But if we get what God gave us in Christ, we call it grace. As Paul discussed the line of Abraham from an Israelite perspective and a Gentile one, he said that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau, verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Which means he favored Jacob, and from Jacob he revealed himself in his promise. That if you wanted to know God, you looked at Jacob's line, not Esau's line. It is from the Jewish people we get to know God from, the, from Jacob's line. But since God chose Jacob and rejected Esau, does that make God unfair and unjust? Paul makes his usual uh, statement, his emphatic, no, absolutely not, may it never be. God is not unjust. God is compassionate and merciful, and he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion because he is the creator. Number one, justice is rooted in God's character. God is love, and justice is an act of his love. Injustice is an act of hate and indifference. In 9.16, Paul wrote, It does not depend on man, who wills with a man who runs, what does it depend on? On the God who has mercy. Justice is not based on this. In fact, we've taken justice and we've ruined it a lot of times. Justice in the hands of man is a, a terrible thing. God's mercy is not extended to us because of us, you know, just because there's something better in me than in someone else. God's mercy is real because he is God and he loves. It's rooted in him. He wants you to know mercy and grace and salvation. This world depends on God who has mercy. If this world would wake up and realize that one fundamental truth, we would see more mercy more than we would see violence, hate, and death. This world depends on a God whether it acknowledges that or not. Humanity does not make the world better without God. It makes it worse. This world needs his mercy. It depends on the God who has mercy. We're not a people of mercy. I'm telling you, God does extend his mercy, but we have to get our minds on the fact that we need it. 
But he doesn't owe us this. He graciously gives it. God created the heavens and the earth. People have sin in their hearts, and as a result, God has every right and prerogative to extend that mercy to whoever he wants. God can do that. He is doing that, and he did do that, and he will continue to do that because he's the creator. Number two, God's revelation is an act of mercy. So he continues on, he says, so it depends not on us, but on God who has mercy. And we must remember that. It, must, it depends on God who has mercy. Oh, praise God yet for his mercy. <laughs> and so Paul gives an example then of Pharaoh. God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. He used Pharaoh's arrogance to reveal his greatness. But even when God was using Pharaoh, he was revealing mercy to Pharaoh because he was revealing his greatness to him. Pharaoh's hard heart could not see his mercy. He would not admit that he was, he was wrong and God was right. In the event of the Exodus, when Moses approached Pharaoh, Moses says, God has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said these very fateful words. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God says, well, let me introduce myself to you. Pharaoh had a hard heart. What is a hard heart? It's arrogance and pride. Pride will not let you see the greatness of God. It only let you see your greatness. Pride will keep you from seeing the greatness of God. Pharaoh's answer to no one in his mind. You know, if you know, if Pharaoh was, he answered. Who did he answer to? Really, no one. He was like a god to the Egyptian, and then the real God showed up. When God displayed his power, he raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose to show that great men of the world who live by their power structures of the world are defeated by the greatness of God's mercy. That the great men, if you look at the scriptures throughout, the great men who rose up, how well do they do? They don't do so well. You won't expend mercy to Israel, Pharaoh? I will. You won't be compassionate to the oppressed? I will. God's mercy hardened Pharaoh's heart while it freed Israel. As the world rejects his mercy, judgment is all that is left. His mercy saves and his mercy hardens. God chose Israel to reveal his name and he used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. But in the end, it was his mercy that was revealed in both counts. Because he's the creator and he is Lord. Number two, God is not answerable to us. We are to him. How, how well did the Israeli nation prove the true character and nature of God in Ezekiel? We get the, the assessment. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Sadly, the people of God did not reveal God very well. In fact, God's, the, the world saw God as unholy and unloving. Just another God in the, in the pantheon of gods. You know, that should warn us as a people who follow God. We must be mindful of revealing God's name that is worthy, loving, holy, and true. We want to make sure people see God in us 
the true and living God. Not a made-up version of what we think God is, but the true and loving, holy, righteous God revealing himself through you and me. Let nothing hinder God's image from being seen in us. Let us be prayerful and intentional in living out his calling. You know, Paul had stated rather clearly that it depends on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on us, thankfully, but on the creator. God reveals his mercy and he hardens. As he used Pharaoh, he revealed his power. But then if God used Pharaoh, hardening his heart to demonstrate his power, then how can he find fault in Pharaoh? Let's take a look at, I think I forgot to read the scripture passages. That happens. Verse 19. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right to, over the clay to make them from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared before, beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there you shall be called sons of the living God. Of the living God. And so we have this rather interesting statement saying, here God raised up Pharaoh to reveal his power. He hardened his heart, as it says in Exodus. But then wasn't Pharaoh being obedient to God by having a hard heart? How can he then judge him for doing exactly what God wanted him to do? God is sovereign, and we must make sure we understand this. We are not autonomous. We are not in control of everything in our lives. Every person is responsible for their sins and will answer to God for their sins unless Christ has forgiven you. Everyone is accountable for their sinful actions. God cannot use Pharaoh's hard heart to demonstrate. Cannot God to use Pharaoh's hard heart to demonstrate his power? Does Pharaoh get to have a say in this? Pharaoh was shown God's greatness and he willfully rejected it. Let me show you Pharaoh's hard heart. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Moses is the leader of the slaves, and he's telling him about the God of the slaves. And he says, let my people go. Pharaoh, who's in charge, leading a wealthy and powerful nation, he holds the highest office in Egypt. His gods are not weak, obviously, since they're in charge of such very powerful people. Obviously, the God of the slaves is not very powerful. His people are subject to tyranny, right? Since Pharaoh answers to no one, and Moses tells Pharaoh, not really asks him, what kind of response do you think you're going to get? If I go up to a very uh, prestigious man who holds the highest office, and he says, let my people go, they're going to probably say no. If, that would, if he would have said, sure, let him go, I'm a kind man. We'd be like, what? This is made up. <laughs> That's hard, his hard heart. He revealed his hard heart. Obviously, the God of the slaves to Pharaoh <laughs> didn't seem very powerful. 
The hardness of heart is God exposing the arrogance of this man thinking he's greater than God. The fact is unbelief is the essence of a hard heart. God sent Moses as his prophet to speak to him the word of God. He was speaking the word of God to Pharaoh. And if God's word is not sufficient, it won't matter what miracle Pharaoh sees. He'll still reject it. Now, let me tell you, unbelief will deny God's miracles. And we're seeing that all the time. I want to tell you, God is the creator and he is sufficient. So number one, God's word is sufficient. It's adequate. If they reject this, it won't matter what miracle I do in front of them. Paul asked this question about God who resists, or who resists God's will of hardening Pharaoh's heart. He said, who can resist God's will when God wants to use a person's sin to reveal his greatness? Paul answers it by basically saying, do you really have a leg to stand on in this question? <laughs> Any recourse? Do you really believe that you deserve something from God that is not judgment? There's another time in Scripture where God showed his greatness to the arrogance of man. It was when Christ was sent to the cross. He revealed his greatness in the suffering of Christ while all of humanity celebrated his death. But in the midst of that revelation through arrogance, he used the hate of the Roman soldiers, the arrogance of the Jewish leadership, and the general sin nature of all humanity to bring Christ to the cross. While he was dying, a criminal, another criminal dying with him, saw Christ on the cross. He saw God's greatness in Christ and said, Christ, you don't deserve this. A Roman soldier saw the greatness of God as Christ died, saying this in Mark, Truly this man was the Son of God. This, was, this is what we as people do best when we sent Christ to the cross. That's the brutality of our nature. When we brutalize people, that's what we do best, sadly. But when Jesus was dying on that cross, that's what he was doing his best, forgiving and loving us. Did we deserve Christ to save us? No, but Christ freely gave himself for us. And God is the creator, and he does what he pleases. Who can answer back to God, asked Paul. Who has the right to tell God, you did something wrong, God? Oh, I've thought of that before, trust me. <laughs> Sorry, God. <laughs> I, I, there's an interesting passage in Jeremiah that says, you are a, a good God, but... I would just like to talk to you about your justice, God. <laughs> Jeremiah says that. In, in the book of Job, Job says this, For he's not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not, tread of, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Can you hear what he's saying there? Speak to me like a man, God, and then I'll have a right to speak to you. That's what he's saying. Take away all this stuff. Speak to me like a man. And I believe sometimes we've done that to God. He's the creator, though. Do you really have a case against God? God, who's the creator, has spoken and done what he wants. Can that which is formed of him Say to him who formed him, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to create as he has pleased? 
Can he not create a people for himself to show his mercy while all those who are not his people face his wrath? That's a tough question to ask, isn't it? Remember, God is a creator and he does as he pleases. He can create those who are destined for mercy and those destined for wrath. But the question is, can those who are destined for wrath ever receive mercy? Well, from my point of view, when I look at it from my level, we're all destined for wrath. <laughs> but we're all invited to receive his mercy. In 2 Timothy, he says this, <clears throat> But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. Because it depends on the God who has mercy, there's always hope. There's always hope. Paul wanted to ensure that, yes, there are Jewish people who have come to Christ. The whole nation did not, but that has been typical throughout their history. His people throughout the centuries have rebelled against God. Wouldn't it mean God prepared his own people for destruction and his own people for mercy to be shown? What would be the point to reveal the character of God for when his character is revealed, mercy is offered? God has even extended his mercy to those who are not his people. In fact, God is not limited with one people, but he wants all people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue to come to him and find and receive mercy. Every act of God is an act of mercy and an invitation. Through his word, he is inviting us to love him. As a follower of Christ, as you read these words, we should become incredibly humble. I pray that you would come over, pray humility would come over your heart as you realize God has shown you mercy and has saved you. And all you can do is say, God, you're awesome. I have nothing but praise to give you. Who am I that you would care for me? When you see the majesty of God's wisdom, grace, and mercy, you bow in utter awe and call out, holy, holy, holy. He is the creator of heaven and earth, and he has established for himself a people who will know him and love him and make him known. The greatness of God is what drops us to our knees and brings us in of awe of him that will never cease. Worship God, because he is the creator. Number three, God is calling for those to follow him. Let's take a look at Romans 9:27 over there turn the page here Isaiah cried out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea it's the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his words on the earth thoroughly and quickly and just as Isaiah foretold unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity excuse me we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah what shall we say then, the gen- that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." Today we're faced with a new culture demanding a new creed and creating a new but dangerous environment. The reality of this new day is the expressive self that has catapulted to a new level of defining inclusive thinking. 
Carl Truman wrote a book called Strange New World, and he quoted a guy by the name of Charles Taylor saying this about the expressive self. I don't have it on the screen. The culture of authenticity, each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Basically, whatever is in here telling me what to do, that's what's coming out. We call it the authentic self. I am just being the authentic self. When you let the sin nature drive you, it is not the authentic self. It's the sin nature. The authentic self is Christ. The Christ life. We preach no lifestyle but the Christ life. This is Judges 17 all over again that we're seeing in today's society. This is anarchy repackaged to sound better and make it more palatable. This is not freedom. We're not God. We do not get to change what God has ordained. We will and are destroying ourselves. God is the creator. God is in control. God is the potter. We are the clay. When we forget this, we will destroy ourselves. Today, we're continually taught that God is not the creator. You are the, me you are the means by which you will reach your destiny. Whatever you feel it is, it's your life. You belong and answer to no one. You do not answer to your parents, you don't answer to society, and you especially don't answer to God. That is anarchy and destructive. Yet through this, God will reserve for himself a remnant, as he says here. People will be saved. The gospel will be preached. God will get his way. The lifestyles promoted will not save us and certainly will not lead us to the freedom that we so desire. God is the only one who can bring us to the freedom we need. It begins by acknowledging, submitting, and declaring, God, you're the creator, not me. So finally, number one, God is faithful to save. As Carmen mentioned, that faithfulness, that beautiful word faithfulness. I can never get over faithfulness. God is faithful in keeping his word in judgment. He will execute. In grace, he will offer. In the salvation he has provided. In the hope he has given. And in Christ, with whom he is putting all things under his reign. This is the God we serve. He is faithful to save his people. He's faithful to save us. Paul wanted the church to realize that God's love does not fail. God's love breaks through. God's love breaks in. God will and has saved Israel. He has not abandoned them. And he will not abandon them. But in his argument in this chapter is proving that God has also seen their rebellion and he has punished them. But even in that punishment, he still did not give up on them. In the Old Testament, we see that God sought after Jew and Gentile. He saved a remnant of his people because of their sin. This remnant is receiving his grace, meaning he does not and will ever give up on them. But it's also his judgment for his people who have rejected him. God will break through stubborn hearts. God will bring people to repentance. God has broken through your stubborn hearts. Paul poignantly points out that the Gentiles found salvation because they received the righteousness of Christ and was offered to us through Christ. Notice he says that they, received, they, re, they did not receive righteousness because they pursued it by works. Remember the thesis of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17. The just shall live by faith not works there's not enough life in me to live righteously that would be acceptable to god that's why christ died on the cross 
What could I possibly do as a man to remove one gram of sin from my heart if it cost God his son to die on that cross? There's nothing I could do. The just shall live by faith. And he says they did not find it because they pursued it the wrong, they went the wrong direction. And the Gentiles, they received it through faith. You know, in Matthew 21, Jesus said, I truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. You know, if you sell that to a self-righteous person, that's tough to hear. You know, <laughs> what? <laughs> Earlier when speaking to the Roman centurion, a Gentile, Jesus was amazed at his faith. Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. People like this Roman centurion. When Jesus entered Jerusalem cleansing the temple, he spoke the parable of the wicked vine growers. At the end of the parable, he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. It is said of Christ that he came to his own people and his own people shut the door in his face. They, they did not welcome him. Did God fail because of this rebellion? No, instead God's, God uses disobedience as an opportunity for grace. The disobedience of some brings opportunity to others. Now, none of us has to work at disobedience. We do that very well, thank you. Living in obedience takes the Holy Spirit. Christ has come. Grace is offered. Mercy extended. Through it all, God will be glorified. People will be saved. Let us desire and commit ourselves to God in joining him to make him known. In obedience, God will use us to show our friends, our families, our community a more excellent and loving way. Because God is the creator. And he's worthy to be made known. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I say thank you for your salvation. I have nothing to offer you. And I thank you that you love me enough to save me. And that you loved each of us to save us. All I can do is say, I thank you, I praise you for your good.